The Start On Demand. On demand. The former chief of police paid us a visit today, Devon Clunas and his wife, Perlene, who have written some children's books that help to promote diversity. So we'll talk to us about the importance of promoting diversity. And while Devon is here, we'll ask him about safety in the city of Winnipeg. Daytime talk host Wendy Williams is in hot water after a wise crack about cleft lips. Winnipeg Blue Bomber player Adam Bighill has been speaking out about this. So we'll learn a bit about what he's been saying and we will speak with a founder and facilitator of an organization called Making Faces. And we'll learn more about last week's visit to Body Measure. We'll speak to co-founders Melina and Erica, and they'll tell us about their business and how they can give you a roadmap to change your life. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Monday, January 13th podcast for The Start. Now we want to talk about what is going on in Iran. Yeah, protesters took to the streets of Iran and in Tehran for a third day today, expressing outrage over the authorities' admission that they had indeed shot down a passenger plane by accident during a confrontation with the United States. Elizabeth Palmer, CBS recaps this week's tragedy from Tehran. This week ended with the unthinkable. Iran admitted to shooting down a passenger plane, killing everyone on board. CBS News has learned that U.S. officials are confident that Iran shot down a Ukrainian jetliner. On Wednesday morning, wreckage and bodies from Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752 lay strewn across Iran's western suburbs. By Friday, when we managed to reach the site, there was little left, even for the scavengers. Local people say that yesterday, Thursday, Around lunchtime, trucks, cranes showed up and took most of the pieces that were here away. Amid rumors of a cover-up, world leaders called for an international investigation. And the victims' families prayed for answers to soothe the grief. The answer came suddenly in a stunning TV address that said Iran's army had shot down the plane by mistake. It was a huge admission for this proud and prickly country, which may have appeased critics outside Iran, but it's inflamed them at home. Protests erupted in Tehran last night. Crowds of students who despise the government for its corruption and ineptitude. Iran starts next week, not only in conflict with the US, but also with itself. Video from inside Iran showed riot police and protesters back out on the streets on Monday after two days of violent anti-government demonstrations. Images of the earlier protests showed slogans chanted against the supreme leader with pools of blood on the streets and gunfire in the air. While it's obviously been a horrifying six days for thousands of Canadians, we know nine Manitobans were among the 176 people killed on that plane that was shot down, that Ukrainian-based airliner. Wiping tears in this city was the Iranian community, politicians and other mourners who had gathered in the Kaboto Center yesterday. That vigil began just after 2 p.m. And by the time it started, some 500 people had crammed into the banquet hall. It was standing room only. There was flesh flowers, candles, photographs of the victims on the walls. 
And Mohammed Jafari Jassani, who helped organize the vigil, says they've really been overwhelmed with the show of support here. We are getting together to celebrate and to actually pay our sympathy and you know, condolences to those who actually died through this action. We are very sad. And so I thought this is the minimum thing that we can actually do. So yeah. what does it mean to see so many people coming out here today and seeing it's, the event hasn't started it's, yet? It's, inc- yeah, it's incredible. We have had a lot of support from Canadians all over the places across Canada. And this is amazing, uh, and I'm happy to see that these these people actually, um, you know, paid their tribute. I know six of these people in person. Yeah, and uh, it's so it's so I, I I cannot describe how I feel, and I'm still in shock. I really don't know what I'm saying right now. Um, it's not fair to these people. It's, this is something that's not acceptable to happen in this world, and uh, we're seeking for the truth. And hopefully the government will help us. Uh, Trudeau has done excellent, and we are very grateful to him. And uh, you know all the politicians and you know uh, people in Canada, they're, they're doing their best. Yeah. And I think I just they need to push the you know uh, the media to to just uh, see what was the truth, what happened. You know we need explanation. Many friends and families are here. They've lost close friends, and. We did this hoping that they can actually speak out and they will be at least relieved after this because just keeping it inside is hard, it's it's very hard. I think at the beginning I was very sad, now it's anger because I thought it was an accident and now I'm not sure. It's very political uh, and there are many parties involved. So, you know, everybody starts blaming other people. So I don't really know who who to blame, but whoever he is or it is, uh, so I think uh, they did a very bad job. Some of these people were volunteered and they were teaching our kids Farsi in Persian classes in the Iranian Community Center, which is ICM. And uh, one of the students of these uh, classes also died. So now, uh, you know, we have lost one of the excellent teachers that we had, some students and some colleagues. Thank you all for actually doing this and uh, uh, we appreciate all the Canadians for what uh, they have shown a lot of support. It's incredible. So yeah, we appreciate that. In Edmonton, over 2,300 people gathered in that city hit hard by the tragedy. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau making the trip to Edmonton to share in the grief and bring a message from Canadians to all those affected by this tragedy. Trudeau saying that although there are no words to ease the pain, the suffering and the outrage that is being felt, he hopes the victims' loved ones will find comfort knowing that Canadians are behind them. Trudeau also calling for justice and accountability in this case, saying they won't rest until there are answers. However, most of his speech focusing on the families, the individuals and the futures lost. Family after family mourning the loss of a loved one who was not just shaping their own lives, but building this country. Every single one of those 57 stories. Justin Trudeau uh, really being uh, held uh, 
in high praise, Loren, over the last several days with how he's uh, dealt with this. Well, I think people on Friday when he talked were looking for outrage and uh, some sort of measure of, you know, we will act and do something to rectify this situation. And it certainly sounded more like that, that that quest for answers and justice will prevail once we get through the, the funeral stage and the vigil stage. So lots more to come with this, including our comments this morning. We were talking about the CEO of Maple Leafs, Greg, who took to the company's Twitter account Sunday, expressing his own outrage. And this is fascinating. He started off by saying, I'm Michael McCain, CEO of Maple Leafs Foods, and these are my personal reflections. I am very angry and time isn't making me less angry. A Maple Leafs food colleague of mine lost his wife and family this week due to a needless, irresponsible series of events in Iran. And then he went on to blame U.S. President Donald Trump for escalating the tension and equal parts praise and condemnation have since followed for McCain in the comments on Twitter. Some saying, thanks for speaking out. This is what we're all feeling, this anger. And many people circling back to the what started this, and I use air quotes in the last week or so, is, is Trump's actions. And then other people not too pleased with him. Well, suggesting that, uh, that that is not where the uh, blame lie. It lies otherwhere. And then others... Pointing out to the Listeria outbreak that claimed the lives of 23 Canadians and sort of uh, throwing that back in the face of Michael uh, Michael McCain and Maple Leaf Food saying, hey, man, uh, your company was responsible for the death of, of almost two dozen Canadians here. Where, where do you stand judging here? Mackling, McGarry... McNabb, Jeff Braun is here, Kelly Moore, Kyle Milroy, producer Kyle in for Jeff Forte this week. Mackling, you were at the game yesterday, right? The Jets game? Yep. It's a good nap. <laughs> that was one of the worst. Oh, I thought you were talking about how the Jets played in the first period. Yeah, it was. I uh, was sort of referencing the fact they napped, I napped. Uh, very frustrating. The Jets losing now six games in a row on home ice. They ever done that before, Kelly? Is that, yeah. their, is that a record? Oh, they've done streak? that plenty of Many, many, many times. Oh, well, it, it feels unprecedented. Yeah. They haven't well, won at it, home in almost a month now. Yeah. It, it's been four years since they've lost six in a row at home. But, oh, okay. Yeah. So since they've been, quote unquote, good, they, yeah. that's the first time they've... They've lost six games in a row, and and you could sense the frustration in the building, super quiet building yesterday again, and so here we are where the the Jets are uh, looking over their shoulders as opposed to... uh, you know, looking well, the, up at first place, they're they're looking up at fourth place in the central. Yeah, while well, they're and they're looking up at the two wild cards now too. They're uh, below the playoff bubble, but that's going to happen all through the remainder of the season, uh, just the way that it, it stacks up. But uh, boy, I'll tell you what, Connor Hellebuck was absolutely fabulous. There is, there was no opportunity for the Jets to come back in that game if he does not stand on his head in the first period. They gave the puck away. 11 times oh, wow. in the first period. 11 times. I I do daily stats on the Jets, and, and their giveaways uh, probably average between 8 to 10 a game. So 11 giveaways <laughs> alone in the first period. That's brutal. And the guy you'd least expect to give the puck away, yep. Adam Lowry with a no-look pass for Andrew Kopp, sets up the only goal of the game for Nashville. So it was just... Yeah, it's not going well for them right now on home ice. They're just finding a variety of different ways to lose at home. Vancouver comes in tomorrow night, doesn't get any easier. No, they've won nine out of their last 11. And boy, that, you know, as much as we talk about the Central Division, two points separate the top five teams in the Pacific Division. 
You know, you've got uh, two teams with 55 points, another one with 54, and two with 53, I think is how it uh, works out, or else it's two 55s, two 54s, and a 53. Well, for season ticket holders, like, now is the time when you're starting to think about renewal. I know a letter went out Mm, late November, and lots of, uh, myself included, said... Let's just wait and see where we are because you sometimes you hang on to those for the playoffs because that's your way to get your better and yeah. sometimes cheaper tickets. And then you get to this point and you have all these fans leaving yesterday tweeting out about how they can't remember. It feels like if you only go to five games a year yeah. and you, five of those have been losses, it's, it's hard yeah, to take to spend that yeah. money and go. Yeah. Jeff Braun, did you spend the whole weekend watching Frazier reruns or did you watch any football? I watched a little bit of football. I watched quite a few Frazier reruns. <laughs> 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 the one last me? night I uh, watched where, uh, where Niles got the bird stuck on his head. <laughs> it's a really good one. Was it a Seahawk by any chance? <laughs> no, it was a cockatoo. But no. before that, I did watch the Seahawks and the Packers. I'll tell you what, though. Russell Wilson, if he's not the most valuable player in the National Football League, I don't know who is. Because there are great players around the league. Uh, but I don't know if any of them are as valuable to their team as Russell Wilson is to the Seattle Seahawks because they would have never even had a chance to be in that game yesterday had it not been for him. Oh, their offensive line has been decimated by injury, et cetera, And all of their running backs well, are, are hurt too. So yeah. They had to go into the vault and bring yeah. out uh, Lynch out of the into the backfield. Uh, Kyle Milroy, that game in Kansas City though yesterday, oh. have you ever well, seen anything it was like incredible. that? Was it was it twenty eight nothing? No, it's twenty four nothing. Twenty four nothing. At what point? Um, and that was at the end of the first quarter. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was just in the beginning of the second quarter, actually. It was 24 nothing, And I thought, I mean, Kansas City has had a history of not really performing that well in big playoff games. Uh, Andy Reid specifically, I suppose. And it was 24 nothing, And I thought, oh, here we go again. And then Kansas City was leading at the half. It was crazy. They were up 28-24 at the half. And... Then the final score was fifty-one thirty-one. So, so they outscored the Texans fifty-one to seven. To, to seven? Yeah, yeah, unreal. Yeah, it was, uh, it was wild. Yeah. It was. I've never seen a game like that before. What is it with Houston football teams and the National Football League and their their <laughs> propensity to cough up huge leads? I like, have no idea. Like how long? It's been what? what like probably 20, 20 years, twenty-five years. I think it was ninety-one. I think when something they, like that. They have 92? thirty-five nothing. The Oilers, yeah, the uh, Oilers Buffalo? Buffalo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that was. You know, and, and speaking of NFL playoff football, uh, I don't know. You guys probably had other things to do on Saturday night, but I'm watching Tennessee play the Baltimore Ravens. And I can't help but draw the parallel with how Tennessee, who was 9-7 and seven during the regular season, had a very average regular season, how they parallel the Winnipeg Blue Bombers' march to the Grey Cup. It's Derrick Henry and Andrew Harris, kind of, six, yeah, six yeah. inches in Ryan stature. Ryan Tannehill, Zach Caleros, Chris Trevler all wrapped up into one. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. Athletic yeah. supporters panel today with Jeff Courier? Yes, sir. 10.30, Kyle? Yeah, we'll be there. Well, I have to be there. I'm sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> we chain him to that chair. <laughs> We start this hour, Loren McNabb, with a showdown potentially brewing at the Manitoba courts where 150 legal aid lawyers are fighting for a pay increase, something they say they haven't seen in almost 12 years. Yeah, in a release we got Friday, this group of lawyers said they had tried repeatedly to meet with provincial officials, but to no avail. And so the, on 150 of them said they would strike as of this morning, that they would refuse to do any bail hearings, this group of private lawyers, as of today. At least that was the plan. And then yesterday, I got a text from our next guest saying, actually, the job action has been called off because the province has said it would start 
consultations with this group of private defense attorneys immediately. Jerry Weeb is the president of the Criminal Defense Lawyers Association of Manitoba and joins us now. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning. Tell me what you mean that you haven't seen a pay increase in 12 years. It mentioned the word tariff, which might be confusing to some. So what are we talking about? Uh, private bar defense lawyers in Manitoba are paid on something called a tariff, and that's actually set by government. It's in the legal aid regulation. So you perform a set task, that's the dollar amount that you get paid for it according to this tariff. Uh, the last time that that tariff was updated or increased in any way was in 2008. So it is 12 years since there's been any increase to what private bar defense lawyers are paid in Manitoba. So why is this the breaking point now? 12 years is just enough is enough. Have you tried unsuccessfully to negotiate in the past? Uh, There has been consultation on and off in the past, uh, as far as I understand, pretty much since this tariff came in. There is a mechanism in place where the Legal Aid Advisory Committee makes a recommendation to the government every two years as to what the tariff should look like. Uh, The problem from our perspective is that there's nothing that makes the government actually do anything about it. And so every two years, the Tariff Review Committee, uh, which is part of the Legal Aid Advisory Committee, has made recommendations, which included at least a cost of living upgrade, as well as uh, certain other things that should be funded. I mean, we're not just limiting our requests to uh, give us more money, but there's been a lot of recommendations made over the years And the government has never, ever responded in any way to those recommendations. Jerry, we've heard over the past few months and years just the stress that's in the court system, the backlog of cases, the idea in certain cities and communities that it just sometimes takes years for anyone to get their case through the court system. So to throw in job action like this would have put a wrench in the system. On Friday, the Justice Minister, the Justice Department said that the legal aid, where there are some lawyers who would continue working, you know, had a contingency plan. And then suddenly they said, hang on no, we're going to talk. And so the job action was called off. Aren't you a bit skeptical that it took this long to get them to talk despite all these years of requests that it took this, hey, we're going to strike that they had, they finally said, okay, we're listening. Well, just to give you a little bit of background, uh, we as an association request a a meeting with the justice minister every year in order to discuss issues uh, that we say face the criminal bar. And, And I've been president for two years. So I've been a part of those meetings for the last two years. So this year we met with the minister in the summertime, raised the issue of the tariff. And at that time, he actually committed to sitting down with us before the September election in order to discuss these issues. So we were actually really hopeful that we were going to get somewhere that someone was actually going to at least discuss the issue with us. Uh, Then when we tried to follow up, we were told uh, they were preoccupied with the election. Please wait till after September which seemed reasonable given they were facing an election. But then we tried again in September, got no response whatsoever or just pretty terse emails saying, uh, you know, we've done what we were prepared to do at this time. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but uh, we got no follow up. So that's when we started organizing and deciding that we needed to take job action. And suddenly the government is is very pleased to sit down and, and give us the consultation that they promised back in the summertime. What, so, oh, go ahead, Brian. I was just going to say, what about Crown Attorneys? Uh, have, have they seen a similar lack of increase in their pay? Uh, my understanding is that since 2008, the Crown Attorney salary has gone up 33%. Wow. So just help so, us understand who you're representing here, Jerry, is, you know, if I want to use the TV or the movie analogy, are, are these the folks that cannot uh, 
afford an attorney on their own. If you cannot afford one, one will be provided for you. And I know that's a an American interpretation, but essentially, is that what who we're talking about here? It's funny, actually. The, the language that you're using is fairly similar to the standard language that that uh, the police use when they arrest someone here in Manitoba. So yes. Uh, Legal Aid Manitoba represents people who cannot afford to fund their own defenses. Um, There are uh, specific financial criteria for people to qualify to get legal aid coverage. And um, generally, if you're a single person in Manitoba, you have to make under $21,000 a year in order to qualify. That's a very general. There's other criteria for qualification as well. Your charge has to be serious enough that you risk going to jail or losing your job as a result. But that's that's a very loose guideline. So, yes, we're representing the people or we're talking here about the people who uh, are are right around the poverty line. Many are well below it and uh, disproportionately Indigenous people, people of colour, that sort of thing. So some of the more vulnerable members of our society. I'd like the rest of us to imagine not having any pay increase over 12 years and see how we would feel about this situation. Jerry Wee, president of the Criminal Defence Lawyers Association of Manitoba, thank you for your time. Thank you. Have a great day. Have you ever wondered exactly how your body works? Like, what's your metabolism? How many calories can you consume safely in a day? How much muscle you have? How much fat you have? Okay, maybe you don't want to know that last one. But if you've got health goals, but you're not sure how to get there, Body Measure can help get you there. And at CJOB.com, you have the opportunity to win the Ultimate Body Measure Experience Package, which we will give away Friday, January 24th, right here on The Start. Now, we had the privilege of visiting Body Measure last week, and we were all just staggered by how much we learned. So for more details, head to bodymeasure.ca. Make sure you go to CJOB.com to get in on the contest. Body Measure is located at 1086 St. Mary's Road. The co-founders are Melina Elliott and Erica Henderson, and they have joined us live in studio on The Start. Ladies, good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. So, Melina, why don't we start with you? What is Body Measure? Mm, that's a great question. <laughs> so, we are Canada's first full-service body composition analysis company. And now you're probably thinking, what does that mean? <laughs> so, we look at a couple of different things. We look at bone density, we look at lean mass, and we look at body fat. And then all of the factors that might be impl- or might be impacted by that. So we can assess your risk for a variety of different chronic health conditions like type 2 diabetes and heart disease, which is associated with a higher amount of internal fat. We can assess your risk for osteoporosis, which is associated with your bone density. We can also assess your risk for sarcopenia, which is associated with low muscle mass. We also do metabolism testing. So to tell you how fast or slow your metabolism is running and how many calories you burn in a 24-hour period. So to really eliminate eliminate that guesswork about where you should be eating on a daily basis. There was lots of things that stood out for me uh, doing this last week, Erica, but one was when I got on the scale and you said, no, you don't have to take all your clothes off. And I was like, but I want to, I want the lowest possible number on the scale, right? Like I just, everybody looks at that number and you both said, this is not about the number. This is about what's going on inside your body. And I think as we all have this quest to be healthier, sometimes thinner or more muscular or whatever it might Mm be, we are so focused on the scale. So what's the difference in your analysis versus what I might just get from stepping on that scale? Well, the scale is really a poor measure of our health because somebody could come in and they're maybe 5'7 and 120 pounds and we do their scan and we find out they've got really low bone density and low muscle mass. Um, So, you know, the scale really just measures how much you weigh and muscle weighs four times as much as fat. So 
you know, you could gain five pounds of muscle, lose five pounds of fat. The scale would stay exactly the same, but you would have really recompositioned your body. So it doesn't always tell the whole story. In fact, it sounds like it sounds very small, tells a very small part of the story. Tells a very small part of the story. Um, For instance, even myself personally, we've been really busy because we just opened up another location in in Ontario. Um, So I was not working out, not exercising, you know, for about four months. And the scale was going down. So, you know, you'd think, wow, I'm, I'm losing weight. I don't have to exercise. I'm getting healthier. <laughs> I'm in getting your mind, healthier, right? you know. But then, you know, I did my DEXA scan after those four months and I'd actually gained two pounds of fat and lost six pounds of muscle. So it's really a poor measurement of health. In fact, a lot of women, especially women when they come in to see us, we actually want the scale to start going up for them if they're low muscle mass. And that's a scary thing for women to look at the scale and be happy when it goes up. You know, so it's, we kind of recommend you have a, a DEXA scan, you, we set a plan in place, you work on that plan for about three months, don't step on the scale and come back and see us and see what's actually happened to your body composition because the scale can kind of mess with your head. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, traffic tip here, westbound south perimeter between Keniston and Waverly. There's been an accident in the curb lane. Again, south perimeter westbound between Keniston and Waverly. So the DEXA scan, that was like we, you, you lie down and it was a, a low dose x-ray that it kind of felt like uh, I think you described it like being in a photocopier mm-hmm. yes. to sort of scan your body. But there's also the test for the resting metabolic rate, which is the breathing tube. I put that picture on our 680 CJOB Instagram. Uh, Melina, explain what that test does and how it works. Right. So So that's the one that tells you how many calories you burn in a 24-hour period at rest. So it has an error rate of 2.2%, so extremely accurate. And oftentimes, if people are trying to either lose body fat or put on muscle, you need to eat within a specific caloric um, range during the day. And so we eliminate the guessing as to what should that be. So you come in, you sit down in the chair, you breathe through the tube for about 15 minutes. And then after that, it analyzes your oxygen intake during that period of time and then gives us your resting metabolic rate. And then we can tell you where you should be eating on a daily basis, depending on what your goals are, whether it's to lose body fat or put on muscle or to maintain your current body composition. It answers so many questions, especially at this time of year. Many of us have made resolutions. Mm -hmm. We want to be healthy healthier or thinner or stronger or faster or whatever it might be. And that search for knowledge, I think, is huge now in the whole uh, dietary exercise world. Mm -hmm. What does this answer that my doctor can't or my trainer can't? And and is this really more about getting to know you and being happy with you? Well, we use technology that your trainer doesn't have and your doctor would never send you to have done. You mentioned it started because you had been doing some studies with some aging Manitobans and you were shocked about how many wanted to learn more about what's going on. Exactly. So Erica and I, previous to opening Body Measure, we were working on a longitudinal, so a long-term study out of the University of Manitoba. Erica was the x-ray technologist and I was uh, coordinator of the study. And um, we had on a regular basis, people come in and we would do DEXA scans. So the one where you lay on the table that gives you your bone density and muscle and, and body fat. We were only looking at bone density at that point. And we had on a regular basis, participants in the study ask if we were taking more people because they knew somebody that could benefit from this information. But of course, that's not the way research works. (laughs) So sometimes the overall number... Mm-hmm. From the scale can be pretty frightening. Yes. And the, you know, individual, a group of numbers on their own might be frightening, but there might be some encouraging information held within. Absolutely. So often we have um, people come in and they, they 
weigh a lot on the scale. You know, they're considered obese by their their doctor. Uh, We do their scan and uh, they're amazed to find out that they actually have a ton of muscle, you know, which is making up a huge amount of their weight, um, which is very encouraging to people. So two things happen when you carry a lot of extra weight for a long period in your life. Uh, You will end up building very strong bones and you're going to end up putting on muscle mass just because you're weight bearing that extra weight all day long. So it's very encouraging for someone to come in who's been struggling with their weight their whole life to have this scan down and done and for me to say to them, you know, you have more muscle mass than, you know, any bodybuilder that I've done this year. And they're like, what? How is that possible? It's like, well, you are extremely strong. You know, your, your percentage of muscle is far higher than the average person. And your bone density is off the chart. You're never going to have osteoporosis. You know, so the only goal you may have is just losing body fat. So, you know, sometimes people are scared to see us if they, if they are carrying extra weight. But realistically, it's usually not all bad news. And we can guide them into what they should be focusing on as far as exercise goes and, and maybe as far as diet goes too, depending on where they carry their weight. If they're carrying it mm-hmm. in around their organs, that internal fat, or if they're carrying it um, subcutaneously more, it makes a big difference. CJOB.com, you have the opportunity to win the ultimate body measure experience package, which we will give away Friday, January 24th, right here on the start. And you can get more information on body measure at bodymeasure.ca. They're located at 1086 St. Mary's Road. The co-founders, Melina Elliott and Erica Henderson. Thank you very much for joining us today. And thanks for having us out last week. It was thanks. super fun. Thank you. And there's always was something fun. good. One good thing there, came out it, of it. There Absolutely. There always is. Yeah. My bones look great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Top-notch bones. Absolutely. I didn't, I didn't know. And now I'm walking around like, check out these bones. Exactly. <laughs> and if I could add one more thing, the DEXA scan is, we are the only place in Manitoba that you can get a DEXA scan. There is no other place that does a scan like this. So come down and see us. And Jeff. we'll check you out. Just before Sports with Kelly Moore at 825, we were talking about the most checked out library books from the New York Public Library. We learned that the top one is a 1962 children's pictures book called The Snowy Day. Oh. Yeah. Do you know that one, Lauren? No, I don't. Okay, good, because I was feeling very illiterate and uh, uncultured lout, as I think what you call yourself, yes, Brett. I, I was do. I was feeling similar that I did not recognize, but I knew the rest of the books on the list. The Cat in the Hat, 1984, Where the Wild Things Are, To Kill Dome, Mockingbird, Charlotte's Web, Fahrenheit 451, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie, great book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and The Very Hungry Caterpillar. i got to step up my children's book game. (laughs) Well, i got a couple of books in my hand right now that could Mm -hmm. help you out. Yeah, we're so pleased to have in studio with us Perlene Clunas and Devon Clunas. Devon, of course, might be better known in this community as the former chief of police for the Winnipeg Police Service, but you've since added author to your name and children's book author, and the books are The Little Girl from Osoyas, The Little Boy from Jamaica. Thank you both for coming in with us. You're welcome. We've, we've looked at these books before and talked about them, Devon, but the idea here is about sharing your story coming to Canada, first of all, and diversity. Diversity and inclusion, very much so. And when you look at our city, you look at our entire country, that is who we are. And it's really important that we do diversity and inclusion very well. 
I think we've noticed, if anything else, the the most heartening and devastating part of what's happened with this Iranian uh, plane being shot down is it's highlighted on the positive side the incredible work that Iranian immigrants are doing in our community. The the brain power lost in that mm-hmm. crash is overwhelming, and the way that Canadians are coming together to celebrate that is is the positive side of that. And I. I, I, I I hate to even suggest we're getting anything positive out of it, but I think we can at least glean a little bit of positivity from that. No, Neil, I would agree with you there because oftentimes I think when you look globally and you see the issues relative to immigration, you see actually a bit of a negative pushback. And people often forget that no immigrants are contributing to any country's well-being. And when you look at the future of most of our nations... Immigration is driving that growth, and it's very important for us to appreciate and embrace that. Well, the first page of your book, The Little Boy from Jamaica, says, Hi there, my name is Devon, and I want to tell you the story of how I became the first black chief of police in Canadian history. And it goes to talk about where you came from. And then your wife's book is about Osoyas. And Perlene, it's an, it's an opposite end of it, because we, at the end of the day, many of us need to look at ourselves and say we all came from somewhere. Absolutely. Well, one of the things is that I have a very unique um, perspective of inclusion because my parents had people from all over the world coming and staying in our home. And so, you know, from a very early age, I was climbing on the laps of people from Cameroon. You know, I got to experience a lady who ate raw fish and I was shocked. You know, so when we are thinking about um, inclusion and really embracing and doing immigration well, we have to realize that, you know, maybe even now I had an interesting uh, conversation with somebody that as Canadians, we are now pretty used to seeing people of different cultures. But when you think about it now, it's people coming from other countries that have maybe have never seen people who are not their religion They come from a place where everybody eats the same food. They all look the same. Now they're coming to a country and they're the ones who have to, are learning to embrace all of these new different cultures that they've never experienced. And how do they do that? So I really think a dream of mine would be for, you know, an immigrant family, the uh, child bringing the book home and saying, mom and dad, read the book to me, or I'll read it to you. And them having their eyes open, like, you know what? I don't know anybody. Maybe I do need to get to know my neighbors because when we know our neighbors, then we feel safe, we don't have the fear, and that's where we're going to build those strong communities that we need to go forward successfully. One of the things that I like about this book, too, is that you're, it's the educational factor just for what's right in our own backyard, where you're asking, like each page, a question is asked. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for example, you point out how when you were young, you moved to northern Manitoba to a couple of small towns, one Manitonus, yep. and the other was called Moosehorn. And if I were to answer the question, have you heard of Minotonus or Moosehorn, I would say no. I didn't even know that. Yeah, so Most people don't. I usually would have to reference it to, have you heard of Swan River? Most people have heard of that. That's where Minotonus was close to. Or have you heard of Ashern? So it's close to Ashern. So I would, not a lot of people have heard of those small communities. What's the power of sharing these stories? What, what does it do? What does it, what does it open up for those of us that are reading them or sharing them with our kids or, or other young people in our community? Well, I think that one of the things that I mentioned is that we want people to not just um, embrace diversity, but diversity has to also come with inclusion. And we really want people to get to know people um, in their homes and understand that 
we have much more that is the same than that is different. You know, we all cry the same when we're sad. We're all happy and we laugh the same when we're when good things happen. We all enjoy spending time with family and friends and eating music or eating food and enjoying music. And that's that's the same that is in every culture. And when we can understand that we have so much more that is the same, then we have um, that feeling of warmth towards our neighbors. And we are we come together and we can make our country the best that it can be. It might be oversimplistic to say that it's also that kind of answer, Perlene, that leads to uh, perhaps reducing issues of poverty or social alienation or even crime. Because uh, Devon Clunas, in the seat that you're sitting in now, we had Inspector Max Waddell here a few months ago just talking about gangs. And, and a lot of the times when newcomers come to Canada, just that feeling of not being able to belong leads them down a path that they otherwise might not, not have gone on. So it's, it, it isn't oversimplistic to say if you're inclusionary, you might prevent that one kid from going down the wrong path. Uh, again, Inspector Max Waddell, somebody I have immense respect for, but you're absolutely correct. Uh, when we think about some of these issues that we're dealing with today, we tend to forget that we need to start looking well ahead and preparing. That's, that's the prevention piece. And you're right. I remember myself coming here as an immigrant and, yes, feeling very isolated. Well, my experience was quite singular back in 1975. Now a significant portion of our community are new immigrants coming from very challenging environments. And I can tell you when they step into a classroom, it's incredibly difficult. And if we don't build those strong relational environments, if we think we're dealing with problems now, it'll be significantly worse going forward. So, yes, we need to start ensuring that our children have that safe, uh, supportive environment in which to grow. I know when I changed uh, schools from middle school or junior high to high school, for the first little while you hung around with your the people that you knew from junior high and then eventually started to meet people that went to the other junior highs at the high school. And so that's your first, I think, instinct is to gravitate towards people that you know. Even when I lived in Calgary, half my friends were people from Manitoba because we had something in common. So, Devon, is is that an experience? Take us back to 1975. Were there a lot of Jamaican Canadians for you to, to hang out with? Absolutely not. I remember my very first experience walking into that classroom and it was like, boom, something was hitting me. I look around, there was not a single soul who looked like Devon Clunas. And so that first year was incredibly challenging. Part of what I think I really want to get across is that we need to recognize, as I said, that first year can be incredibly difficult for that new immigrant. And there were some who looked at that little boy and said, and you'll read it in the book, he's not very smart. Let's just put him on a certain path, which would have been very negative. I probably would have become one of those disaffected gang kids because I didn't feel that anybody cared for me. But it was because of a teacher who intervened and said, no, I believe in you. And because of her, I became the top student by grade nine graduating. And as you read earlier, first black chief of police in Canadian history. Yeah, have you phoned up a couple of those teachers now and said, like, uh, told you so? <laughs> I, I thank the ones who <laughs> That's a diplomatic response. Listen, before we let you go, I, 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 safety is such a big topic of mine. Um, and because of your role in the past as chief of police, how often are people coming to you saying, what is the solution here? And I'm not expecting you to give me a one-word answer, but we're concerned, right? And mm-hmm. so are we on the right path to rectifying this? Well, I always like to preface this by saying, I am the former chief. I am not speaking for the police service or any political entity, but I am a Winnipegger deeply committed to this community. And yes, people are consistently coming to me looking for solutions. The one thing I would say is this, and the books actually speak to this, is that the one thing that I see that's really lacking right now within the community is that sense of community. 
uh, when we see an issue, we are not coming together to tackle that issue, but oftentimes we're blaming someone else. And that will never bring us to a solution. So I would say 2019 was a horrible year for us. We need to start looking forward. Anybody in a position of significant authority in this city should look at themselves and say, did I do everything I could? And if the answer is yes, then I'd be very much afraid for our future. But if they can say honestly, you know what, there's something better I could have done here, there's where we have hope. And then we come together and we do the very best that we can in 2020 to ensure that in 2021 we're not having the same conversation. We we're have always, what we need. We're so guilty of, we were discussing it just this morning, you hear about a crime and then you do the geography game in your head. Is this close to me? Mm-hmm. No. And then does it ha- is this happening in a, in a neighborhood where we quote unquote expect it to happen? And is this a random act of violence? We do that little checkbox things, don't we, as to whether or not this is going to be an important story for us. Yes, you know, uh, we used to always talk about the North End, the inner city. And during my time, I said, we need to change our conversation. This is our North End, our inner city. We're one city. If one part hurts, the entire city hurts. And we need to get back to that mindset. Where do we get the books? The little boy from Jamaica and the little girl from Osoyoos. Um, you can get them at Amazon. You can get them at clunasconsulting.com. You can get them at McNally Robertson. All right, Devon Clunas and Perlene Clunas, thank you so much for joining us. Do you had one final thought, Loren? Is he more fun now as an author than he was a police 100%. officer? 100%. That's what I, I figured as much. That's much better to hang out with at home, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Devon and Perlene, thank you very much for the, for the visit thank this you. morning. Our we pleasure. It. Thank you. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, it's being called the Sandringham Summit. Seriously, that's what it's being called. And I just had to look this up because Who's I'm trying calling to... calling it that? Well, it's been... It's the moniker, I think, given by some of the British media because what's happening in the UK today is a summit, if you will, of royals to try to figure out what is going on with Prince Harry. And for more, we're joined by... Oh, you threw up your hands. Go ahead. They can't see that at home. I was what just going to say, what's to figure out? He's leaving. They're done. No. They're out. Goodbye. No, they're so... We're moving to North America. No, wrong. See you later. So much more to figure out. There's outfits to be chosen as they leave. <laughs> Dogs to pack. I don't know. You say so. Dogs to pack. But, but there are big questions, and this is a big deal for people who follow the monarchy, and also for a big deal who wish it would all just go away. And for more to explain what's going to happen today and what we're watching for, we're jo- joined by Global Nationals uh, European correspondent, Redmond Shannon. Good morning, Redmond. Good morning, guys. So let's start with this Sandringham Summit. That is Sandringham is the home of? Well, it's the residence of the Queen and Prince Philip. Uh, they, when they like to get away from the hustle and bustle of, the, of London and Buckingham Palace, you know, it can get a bit much and a bit stuffy down here in London. So they head up to Sandringham for, uh, you know, a bit of quiet time. And uh, that's where they are today. That's where the Queen is today, sitting down face-to-face with Prince Harry, Supposedly, we believe, for the first time since Harry and Meghan uh, put out this bombshell statement saying that they wanted to step back as senior royals. And there at the summit, too, we believe Prince William, his brother, and Prince Charles, his dad. And we understand, reportedly, Meghan will be phoning in from Canada. So they'll all be uh, sitting down together trying to hammer out uh, some sort of compromise deal on what the future will be for Harry and Meghan. So you'll have to forget, forgive some of us who find this all a little bit ridiculous. And Redmond, uh, th- th- not out of disrespect in any way, my mom would be horrified to know that I feel the way I do about the royals. But talk about their importance and why this is such a big deal to not only the Commonwealth overall, but in particular those in Great Britain. 
Well, yeah, you don't need to convince me there, but um, it, it is definitely, I think, a, a something that is reflecting the royal family's uh, shape and tradition colliding with the modern world. And this is obviously something unprecedented. Now, we have in the past had, of course, a king abdicate from the throne, the queen's uh, grandfather's brother who abdicated from the throne in order to marry a divorced American woman. Now, Prince Harry didn't have to do anything to marry a divorced American woman because this is a more modern time. Um, and uh, that all went off very swimmingly two years ago. But the, the supposedly the pressure they've been under in the recent years uh, have led them to want out or at least want partially out of the royal family. So how do you be a Duke and Duchess within the royal family, a senior royal member, but not be a senior royal member. It seems like they want uh, to uh, remain part of the royal family in some respects, but not other respects. And that's drawing criticism from some quarters, but sympathy from other quarters because of the insane amount of media attention that Harry and Meghan get, and particularly Meghan. And there are a lot of examples cited in the British media of how Kate is treated, uh, that the Duchess of Cambridge, of course, treated uh, with reverence, perhaps, and Meghan gets uh, consistent criticism for doing pretty much the exact same thing. And uh, she is human, even though she married into the royal family. And uh, Harry has indicated a few months ago that he will do everything he can to protect his wife and child. And maybe that's what, what they've reached to breaking point. They want out, they want to get away, and maybe they're going to Canada to get away. Do we know yet which of the two of them is really sort of driving this? I don't think we know that. And, and let's be honest here, Harry's a grown man. Uh, he is his own man. And uh, he was always, you know, in the shadow of his older brother, as, that, as is the case in uh, royal families. He's now uh, well down the pecking order in terms of uh, in line to the throne. He will never be king. So it's, he doesn't have to stay part. Well, he feels he doesn't have to stay part of the royal family fully. Um, you know, Megan is being painted by certain parts of the media as someone who might be, you know, manipulating him. But, I mean, he is a grown man and he, he's always been a member of the royal family. So it's a bigger decision for him to leave than it is for her. But how much they leave, that's the big question. That's what's being ironed out today. How, how much can they leave the royal family and how, which foot do they keep in and which foot do they, can they take out? Global Europe correspondent Redmond Shannon joining us live on 680 CJOB to talk about the Sandringham Summit. Redmond, thank you as always. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Bye. Greg, I understand you have a question. Was it about a thermostat? Yeah, well, <laughs> Well, first of all, out of nowhere, yes. this, we were in the newsroom just now, and uh, Greg said, what's your perfect temperature well, in the home? Well, it was only because you mentioned to me over the weekend that you slept in your house coat. That's and true. so you're wearing your red coat that some people bug you that it looks like a house coat. Everyone bugs so me. So then that I it said, does, yes. is that the house coat in which you slept Friday night? No, because it's not a house uh, coat, uh, it's a coat. Uh, of course, it's not a house coat. It is an actual <laughs> coat. So that led to my question of where do you set the thermostat in your house? And you were still cold despite the fact you set it where? I think I had it at, we had it at 23, I want to say 23 and a half. And you were still cold. Yes, I was freezing on Friday night. I thought maybe I was getting sick, to be honest, but everything worked out. But I normally run hot, so I would normally say I'd 21, 22 is fine for me. 
So that's cool in your mind. That's cool in my mind. Is that hot? Well, I took a little bit of a survey in the newsroom. 21, 22 is pretty common. 21 and a half, 22 is about where I like to set mine. And then one of our colleagues goes, uh, 16, 17. And I'm like, <laughs> holy crow, because I have I have one of my family members who sets it around 16, 17. And uh, I need to remember when we go to their house, I have to wear extra socks, an undershirt, and a hoodie on top of my two layers of clothing in order to stay warm because I don't like it cold. But one of my brothers says this, and I think it's a great point. Why in the wintertime is 21 or 22 really comfortable in your house, yet in the summertime, that's excruciatingly hot and you need the air conditioning on to get it down to 18 or 19? Drafts. I don't know. I think it's an interesting question. Well, yeah, I guess maybe because you're looking to escape the heat. So you Perhaps. want it, you want it to feel point. not only comfortable, but you want it to feel cooler, especially on a really hot day. It's nice to walk into a home that is air conditioned. What the drawback with that is that if you sit like if you're sitting in a basement or something, whenever I go to my uh, I remember growing up my I would spend most of the time in the basement and eventually I would have to flee the basement because it would get too cold down there. And I lived, uh, when I lived with my buddy, I lived in his basement and he always had the temperature set to 18. So in the On the ba- main oh, yeah. floor? Oh, so that's cold. So in the, in the basement, I think it was like 14, 13 degrees. I remember I had a couple of friends over, uh, Buddy and his girlfriend, and they had, they had to ask for a blanket because they were sitting on my couch just shivering. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, it was cold, but I mean, I, I got used to it. And now I actually prefer it a little bit cooler no matter what. Yeah. Uh, like uh, in my old apartment, I couldn't control the temperature. So it didn't matter how cold it was outside. I had a window open <laughs> because yeah. it got too hot otherwise. Apartment living's like that. That's hard. I remember growing up on the farm, we complained for years to my dad that it was way too cold in the basement. But it was the kids' bedrooms that were down there. So my parents didn't sleep down there. And it was the TV that was down there. And they hardly ever watched TV. So they were never down there. So he just ignored us for like a decade. And <laughs> Do you then, think you're going to a, a semi-hibernation when you go to sleep when it's that cold? My, I don't know. But it was cold. It was a summer, winter, fall. You had a blanket all the time. And then we all left home. And they, they slowly, they, they put like a workout room down in the basement. And they had like, they were down there watching TV and just went summer. I remember my dad saying, geez, it's really cold down here, right? <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me, man? We have been yelling at you about this since we were like 13 years old. But it's it's all what you, uh, what's all in the perception of where you are. I do prefer it to be cooler when I'm sleeping. But the trick is to find the temperature where it's cool but not cold. Yes. Because I, while I, I, I think I sleep the best when it's cold, but then the problem is... You wake up and you go, God, it's cold in here. I don't want to get up, even though I have to get up. Then you just end up staying in bed longer. Keep flipping that pillow, trying to find the cold side. And then, oh, oh, it's so nice and cold. And you're toasty warm. You do not want to get out of bed. I so, so relate to that. And that's the best thing about camping, in my mind, is that it is, never mind the fresh air, but how cool it gets at night. And you're in that sleeping bag and your pillow's nice and cold. There's nothing like sleeping as Close to outside as you can. Oh, but the no, problem, I want to go camping. The problem with that, though, is then you wake up and the sun's bearing down in your tent and you wake up all sweaty and gross. Well, that's when you go to bed at five in the morning and you've been up around the campfire drinking all night. Yeah, well, that's usually what it happened. And it's nice and cool <laughs> and? overnight. And then you wake up a few hours later when the sun's up. And uh, especially if you've been drinking by the fire all night, you don't want to wake up all hot and sweaty and gross. It's Ugh. like a sauna yeah. inside your tent. Yeah. yeah, I remember those days. Yeah, now I'm, t- now I'm just being brought back to Red Lake Falls where I woke up and it was hot and sweaty. And then I had to quickly get out of my tent to go... Uh, 
shall we say, purify myself. Yes. Yeah. To cleanse, to, mm-hmm. to get rid of some of the evil that I had uh, oh, yes. done to myself the previous night. Here is the controversial <laughs> comment from daytime talk host Wendy Williams talking about Joaquin Phoenix. He shaves that off, but the way he looks at you. Yes, those piercing uh, eyes. Right? Those crazy piercing and, and eyes. And he's got that good nose. It dips way down. <laughs> like he's happy with it. So so am I. And when he shaves off his mustache, he's got a hairline yeah. fracture. He's got one of those, um, what do you call it? Cleft lip. Yep. Cleft palate. Yep. He's, he's got yeah. this. Yeah. He's got this. Uh-huh. No, I find it to be. I find it to be very attractive. Adam Bighill of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers has been speaking out about this over the weekend, and he's actually been trying to offer an olive branch to to Wendy Williams to offer her an education. And Greg, so Adam's going to speak with Julie Buckingham, and you'll hear some of that conversation later this afternoon on the news. But right now, Greg, who are we going to talk to? Michael William Stark. He's founder and facilitator with Making Faces, Inc. Their website, makingfaces.ca, joins us now. Good morning, Michael. Great to reacquaint ourselves with you today. Good morning, gang. Good to be with you again. Well, we appreciate what you're doing in the community and uh, appreciate the back and forth that we had via email last night because there are some people who are very angry about this and, and Adam is, is taking a, a, a strong stance on this, circulating a petition for looking for, at the very least, an apology. Some people are looking for Wendy Williams to, to be fired over this. Where do you stand? No, I wouldn't want to see her lose her job over this. I think we all make mistakes and we all have said stupid things and and you know hopefully we learn from these mistakes i i'd rather that she use her uh, platform uh to spread empathy and kindness so i'm hoping that she'll invite adam and i to be on her show and we could do some educating and uh spread the love what was it when you watch it and when you rehear that clip now michael that stood out to you because there's some who said, you know, what she was saying potentially wasn't as harmful as the actions and the mimicking that took place. It started off perhaps, and I'm putting a question mark there, as trying to play a compliment, but in the end, it really was a downright mocking. Yeah, I think sometimes we're trying to be funny. Uh, you get caught up in the moment, and uh, it's not always funny. Um, I, Yeah, I found the the physical sort of mocking of it a bit painful. Not for me. You can call me whatever you want. I don't care anymore. I'm a big boy. But I think about the parents of the children and the children themselves. And it did remind me of being a little kid out on the playgrounds of New Westminster, British Columbia, and, you know, being harassed and chased and and, uh, teased. So, uh, yeah, there there were some painful uh, memories relived after I saw that. Do you think it's a moment where this is just simply a kind of ignorance on her part, not even necessarily in a negative way, just she didn't quite realize the extent of her actions? Well, when she mentioned hairline fracture, I think she was looking for the word hair lip, uh, which is a derogatory comment. Uh, but most people don't know that. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of it is just ignorance and just getting caught up in the moment. Her uh, sidekick was yucking it up pretty big, as was the audience. And I think they just got carried away with the moment. And again, that's where I think uh, Adam and I could be uh, excellent guests for the show, just to sort of uh, 
uh, share the other side of the situation. I mean, she was going on and on about how beautiful he is and how attractive he is, and then she stepped over that line. And by the way, Joaquin Phoenix was born with a. Maybe you can help us with this terminology, if you wouldn't mind, Michael. A microform cleft. Yeah, I didn't. I don't think he's actually uh, like a cleft lip. Let's say it like Adam and I were born with. It's uh, to me, it looks more almost like a shaving cut or uh, not making light of it. But it's not. It's not the serious. Uh, I don't think he needed any surgeries for for what he went through. That's my understanding. Um, also. Yeah. Whereas I've gone through about thirteen or so. I'm not sure how many Adam's gone through. Um, often it's anywhere between you know five to fifteen surgeries on average for. For the kids, so it's a lot of um, uh, pain growing up, and a lot of uh, it, you know, it's quite terrifying when you're a little guy first going in for surgery. So, um, yeah, I don't think Joaquin went through any of that, um, uh, and I'm glad to see anybody of any sort of difference on on air or on film because you know we should be building a world of inclusiveness. There's the physical pain you reference with multiple surgeries, which I think a lot of people aren't aware that, you know, I think there's an assumption out there that there's a simple fix and that you can, you know, have that surgery and be done with it. And that's clearly not the case. And then I think there's also the idea that people don't recognize the emotional pain that comes with something that makes anyone feel like other than themselves. And so when you speak about being teased in the field and the playground and all the rest, it's got to be a similar story to many who might be born with any facial difference. Of, of course, and uh, your your face and your voice are the, your first tools of communication, really, when you step out into the world. And when both are uh, distorted to some degree, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a challenge just going out the front door. I remember I used to just psych myself up in front of the medicine cabinet mirror when I was a little boy, saying, okay, you're going to walk out into the world now. You're going to be okay. If you go by this route, you won't meet so many people. And I give myself a little lecture every day before going out into the world, and that's uh a lot of stress for for a child. Talk about the value of Adam Big Hill's advocacy and him being so willing to to come out and and share his story and to not only do that but to be an advocate the way he is. It's got to have so much value for for anyone who was born this way. Well, you said it. Adam's just a great guy. I lucky to count him as a dear friend. I love the guy. Um, also, he plays in my favorite sports league, and that helps too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's fantastic that uh, that he's out there. Um, and he's a great example of, you know, what we call, all can achieve if we, if we work hard. And, uh, you know, you can't let these differences stop you. You have to... Um, you have to get out there into the world and participate, and that's what Making Faces is all about. We try to get the kids to feel good about who they are and realize that everybody brings their own unique gift into the world, and, uh, yeah, to get out there and participate. So having Adam there is just uh, golden for us. Have there been advancements in the surgery itself? And to how many How many did you end up having? Did you say 13, Michael? I, I think I've had around 13 throughout my whole life. I mean, a lot. I think I spent, I'm told I spent my first three months or four months in hospital as a baby. So I didn't even come home right away. Um, and then I had many surgeries uh, throughout my childhood. Um, it depends, I think, on the severity of the, of the, uh, of the difference, uh, how many surgeries you'll have, whether you'll need to have the uh, jaw uh, straightened out, you know, how many operations on the cleft palate itself, let alone the lip. Um, some uh, children have um, 
uh, hearing issues from uh, the cleft lip and palate. So it, it depends, really. There's so many variables. And in terms of those surgeries, like why do you, why are so many surgeries required? Why can't they just sort of do one and done? I think nowadays they're starting to do a lot um, right, like very young when you're when you're just a baby. Uh, in my day, uh, they they did some patching up, I would call it, but uh, I had to wait till I developed to a certain degree to have my face rebuilt. Um, so I had to wait till I was about 14 before they were ready to go ahead with that. And that was a major reconstructive surgery. Um, yeah, there's just so many variables. Uh, you know, it has to do with how you grow when you're aging. Uh, will your teeth need some uh, fixing? Will they need to do a bone graft to make sure that you're able to retain your teeth uh, because of the, uh, the cleft palate? There's, as I say, there's just so many variables. If you were to get in a room at the very least with this Fox host Wendy, or if she actually agreed to let you on the show, what's the one thing you'd want to say? I would just say, first of all, I, you know, I, I'm not angry with her. I just, I, I think it is a matter of ignorance. Uh, I would just like to say, um, you know, before we speak, we should really, you know, like to say, walk in the other person's shoes. So, have uh, really what we want to do is build a world of inclusiveness and empathy for all of us, right? We all, either we wear our scars or we don't, but we all have had struggles. And, uh, you know, let's let's just try to build a world where, where we're all welcome. Well, it's an opportunity to, to have a platform because Wendy Williams wouldn't be on the air if she didn't have viewers. So this would be almost a, a missed opportunity if she doesn't embrace this and and welcome someone from the community that can speak about this and and hopefully educate not only her but many of her viewers. Michael, thank you so much for the work that you do and taking some time with us today. Thank you, and I'd like to thank all the people that have come out in support of us. It's uh, been heartwarming. I just I'm blown away by the outpouring of love that we're getting from the community. So thank you all very much. Michael William Stark is the founder and facilitator of Making Faces, Inc. And once again, Julie Buckingham going to speak with Adam Bighill from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and you'll hear some of that conversation later this afternoon on the news, which starts at 4 o'clock on 680-CJOB. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.